with Jesus right now, in our, where we're at in our text, he is preparing his disciples because he knows he's going to leave them. He knows he's going to go to the cross. So my title for the study today, out of Luke's gospel, chapter 19, and we're going to get into chapter 20 as well today. It's, my title is Prepared for King Jesus. Prepared for King Jesus. And we recognize that Jesus just entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, the last time we were studying our, our chapter. And we saw how he entered in and they were worshiping him and praising him with, with the, the palm trees and the palm branches. And he's now really pouring into his disciples as much as he can. And also even, he's going to prepare even the Jews and the Pharisees for what's to come. He's going to warn them. And I recognize that God prepares his instruments. He prepares us for the work that he's called us to. See, Jesus himself was being prepared for the cross. And you're being prepared. See, I, I experienced my preparation as a groom and I got to ha enjoy some time with my Christian brothers. Uh, my wife, Lisa, she was also prepared as, as, a, as a bride. But I'm, I recognize, look, the most amazing wedding that ever is going to take place is when Jesus comes to his bride, the Christ. I'm sorry, his bride, the church. And are we preparing ourselves as the church to meet Jesus? Are we prepared to meet him now? If we were to leave today, I'm not trying to be morbid or scary. But anything can happen when, right now, we, all of a sudden my heart could just shut off. And that's it. Am I prepared to meet Jesus? Me and my wife were driving in Chino Hills yesterday, and we saw uh, police and a, a, a tarp over a body. And then we start trying to f figure out what happened, what was going on, and it looks like someone died of a heart attack. And, and you just don't know. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that's referring to the rapture, but, but in a moment, are we prepared to meet Jesus? Where would we be right now if we died? Where would we go? I think of my grandma right now. I'm so blessed that I have a grandma and grandpa that are believers, but this past week, uh, I just saw that age is now, it, it, her time is short. And, and, and it, it, it's now at a new point, though, for me, where I'm looking at my grandparents. Like, they are now at a new stage in their life, where now the, the, the children are taking care of the parents. But I'm so in so much peace about my grandparents because I know where they're going to be and I know I'm going to see them again. She was telling one of my cousins, she said, uh, uh, two, a couple birthdays ago, he said, oh, Grandma, you're going to have so many more birthdays to come. And she's like, I hope not. <laughs> and he's like, no, Grandma, no. <laughs> Don't think that. Um, so are we preparing ourselves for Jesus? Now again, the last two weeks uh, when we were studying this portion of scripture, Jesus was entering into Jerusalem with the triumphant em 
entry. And then Jesus, at the end of verse 42, he begins to weep over Jerusalem and show his compassion for a lost Israel. We'll pick up right there at verse 42 in chapter 19, saying, Jesus said this, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the thing that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He says, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So see, he's weeping and mourning over Israel, God's chosen people who should have been ready and prepared to receive their Messiah, but instead as a whole, the nation, they rejected the Christ. They allowed for him and sent him to be crucified. So because of this, Jesus knowing these things, he sees also that there is going to be a national destruction in Israel. And in history, it's recorded that the temple in Jerusalem was burnt down. You see, under Caesar Nero, they would have these little Jewish rebellions against Rome. So Caesar Nero in AD 70 sent his general Titus to go conquer and squash any rebellion from the Jews. And as they did this, it wasn't their intention, but just in the warfare, suddenly the temple was being burnt down. And as the temple is being burnt down, what's really unique is that all the gold of the temple began to melt and it would mount on all the walls and the stones within the temple. So much so that once the, the siege was over and the Romans, they, they conquered and they said, hey, look at all this gold is melted on these stones. They began to break down all the stones so that they could take the gold away from it. And just like Jesus said, not one stone will be laid upon another in this temple. And just by God's sovereignty, they took all the stones because they wanted the gold on them. You could actually go still put your hands on the stones today. They're still there in Jerusalem. That's history coming to life. Now, another unique portion uh, of history, not in the Bible, but where you can really see that God had to chasten the nation of Israel is in the destruction of the last little siege mound of this place called Masada in Israel. So three years after Titus sacked the temple in Jerusalem, there were still these little fractions of rebellious Jews who were trying to overthrow Rome. And eventually Rome was going in and just conquering and killing it and destroying any type of rebellion, so much so that all of these, these rebels and these Jews had to go to Masada, which was a big plateau that King Herod built. Now, if you study King Herod, he was a little guy. So because he was a little guy and he had a little man syndrome, he had to make everything that he built so big. So if he was going to build a fortress, he was going to make it the bi- biggest fortress that anyone's ever seen. Just his little 
little man. And then he, he made this big fortress on top of this plateau called Masada. And so when the rebels, these Jewish rebels, were being attacked by Rome, the place that they went to was this place called Masada. They went up to this plateau, this huge fortress. And it seemed like that fortress was going to be impenetrable. But as the Romans came, they surrounded it and they waited them out. And there was a wall that was going around that finally one day the Romans broke through that wall. And then the Romans, after they broke through the, the wall, instead of just going right in and conquering, they went back down the plateau. And that night they celebrated and made the music really loud. Because they knew the next day they were going to go right in there and wipe them out because the wall was broken through. And all the Jews who were hiding up in Masada, they had families too that were up there. There was actually 960 of these people. They knew that they were going to be conquered the next morning. And so rather than being conquered again by another nation, similar to the time that they were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt, they said, we're all going to commit suicide tonight. So 960 people were there, and all that was left, all that the Romans found was two women and five children. That was all that was remaining to be alive. And when the Romans went up there to go attack, the Romans began to weep and to see, oh my gosh, this was a terrible tragedy. We didn't come in conquering here. These people all committed suicide. But God still has his remnant with Israel. Israel was not wiped out then. You see, Jesus, as he's looking over Jerusalem, He's saying, look, the thing that they wanted the most out of Jesus was for him to overthrow Rome. But the thing that they needed the most was for him to overthrow their sin. And that happens in our life. Where we think, God, we just need you to take care of this in our life. And then everything will be good. But in reality, God's saying, hey, let's, let's take care of the first things first. Let's take care of the spiritual things first. In verse 45, now Jesus, it says, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So in these verses, what do we see here? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Or do we see a Jesus who is turning over and driving out men who were doing what they shouldn't do in the temple. Now, what's interesting, this is actually the second time that Jesus did this. See, there's two accounts where he goes into the temple and overthrows the the money changers' tables. On the first account, the first time he does it, he actually makes a whip. Now, it doesn't say that he was whipping people, but I don't know why he would make a whip if he wasn't, just driving them out. So gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? Just ah, throwing the table over. And then he's telling them, look, you guys have made my father's house a den of thieves. And this, by the way, on a side note, this isn't now an excuse, you see? Righteous anger, I could be angry, and get away with it, because Jesus did that. No, this was the, the one thing that made Jesus, in righteous anger, act 
in obedience to the Lord. See, sometimes in our anger, we are acting out in, in disobedience to the Lord. But when Jesus did this, it was his righteous anger. And the one thing that made him go to this level was they were making his father's house a mockery. And I like how he says that the house, the temple, was to be a house of prayer, which is one of the, the functions of the church, is a place of prayer. Because the, these people, the Pharisees, what they were doing with people, it was they were saying, okay, look, you could come and offer your sacrifice here at the temple. But in order for you to do that, we need to inspect your animal first. And so you'd come in with Babe the pig, or not pig, sorry, they didn't sacrifice pigs. You'd come in with your little lamb or your little chicken, your little dove, and you'd be like, here, I, I want to offer this as sacrifice for my sins for this year. And then they pull up the chicken, they look through all the feathers and be like, oh, you see that little pimple right there? No good. You have to buy one of our chickens. They've been cleansed and purified. And then they would sell them the chicken or the lamb, or the cow, at a much higher price than what it was really should be. And what they were doing with that extra money is they were putting that money into their own wallets. And Jesus knew this. The flock was being fleeced. Now, when the Ephesian church in the New Testament began to have disorder in the church, one of the, the teachings that Paul exhorted Timothy in was to get together with the leaders to pray, which is interesting. Because an overseer, the leaders, must not be greedy for money. And you're going to learn real quick in ministry that, that the, when you step into ministry, you're, there's not going to be money right there. In verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So I notice here that Jesus, where is he at? He's in the temple teaching. A lot of the times we, we kind of get this idea that Jesus was, had nothing to do with organized religion. But he's teaching in the temple and he also had the balance of going outside of the temple. Now, this plot now, as these Pharisees, these religious leaders are looking at Jesus with envy, they began to plot to kill Jesus. And over the next few days, these are the last moments before Jesus is heading to the cross to be crucified. And why? Because the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were envious of him. Remember, up until the time of Jesus, people would look to these priests. First, they, they would look to the prophets, and then they would look to the priests for God. They would look to them for God's word, for direction, for spiritual guidance. And the Pharisees, they loved this. It says in the Bible that they loved the praises of man. And they loved hearing, oh, uh, rabbi, which means teacher. They love that name, that title. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, you don't have to go through the rabbis and priests anymore. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And now, is that narrow-minded? Absolutely, it's narrow-minded. Is there a lot of ways that we can get to heaven? Nope. The Bible that we teach, the Bible that we study, that's not politically correct, it goes against the nature of the world. And it was going against the truth, not not the Bible, but the Pharisees were going against the truth that had come, Jesus himself. And because of this, they began to fear that the Roman overseers would hear about another king in town. That was King Jesus. And they would see Jesus and his followers as another rebellious people. And so the Pharisees also, not only out of jealousy, but also out of fear of Rome, began to plot how we can kill him. In in chapter 20 now, it says, Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. So again, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And that's one thing that you're going to see in Jesus' life, his ministry. He had a threefold ministry. Jesus' threefold ministry was preaching, teaching, and healing. Now, who is preaching for? Does anyone know who preaching is for? The non-believers. And who is teaching for? The believers, yes. You see, if I was to meet with you guys on a, a weekly basis, and I know, let's say, I, I knew all of you guys were, were saved, that you had salvation. And if every week, the only thing that I ever dived into was just the, the message of the gospel, you guys would be saved, but there would be no maturity as a believer. See, we need the whole counsel of the Bible. There has to be teaching. And teaching has to be spiritually discerned. So keep this in mind. You cannot hear the voice of God on an intellectual level. So right now, we're all sitting here in this room. The word is being taught. There is a lesson that is taking place here in the Bible. But apart from that, what I don't see going on is what God is speaking to your hearts. And I exhort us as believers to be expectant that God is going to speak to you. So before you approach the Bible and your devotional time at home as as you're reading the Bible, you have to, and this is why I pray and ask that Jesus would speak to us through his word. That there would be a, a spiritual revelation of the text. Because there has to be spiritual revelation. Because the head knowledge, it, it's just going to bounce right off your brain. It's not going to go anywhere. If, any, if anything, it might puff you up and you might think, oh, like, I really know the Bible. But there's no spiritual connection there with our Father. So as Jesus is 
preaching and teaching, also healing, his message when he would preach, you often see in scripture that he would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there is that message of repentance in our life. That is something that we, we have to do in our life. And it's not something that's easy. That we have to repent. And that's a daily thing. We have to repent of our sin, ask for forgiveness, and ask that God would grow us on into maturity so we're not continuing in our sin. I'm reminded that same message that John the Baptist taught this. And John the Baptist had an interesting ministry. John the Baptist, who was one of Jesus' relatives, a lot of people think he was his cousin, we're not sure. But John the Baptist, his message was, look, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And when John would be preaching this, he'd be preaching it to the nation of Israel, who shouldn't have been compared to the wilderness desert. They should have been compared to this lush garden, but instead... They were compared to the wilderness and what's in the wilderness. And you guys think of the desert. What's in the desert? Sand, nothing, right? Death, cactuses, little lizards that are running away. It's not this full of, of, of this green type of illustrative life. And sometimes that's what the church is like. We're a wilderness. Sometimes there's parts of our heart, parts of our walk where we go through a wilderness experience. You see, Jesus, continuing on verse two, it says, and spoke to him, telling, saying, tell us, now these are the leaders telling Jesus, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they, did, that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I love this. See, they're questioning Jesus' authority, the, the religious leaders. They're saying, hey, who gives you the right to overthrow the money changers in the, in the temple? And Jesus, knowing that his father had given him the right, he put a little test before these Pharisees. He said, look, John the Baptist, who had the same message to repent, who gave him authority? Was it men or was it God? And out of fear, they, they, and Jesus in his wisdom put them in a trap where they knew it, he was revealing truth to them first and foremost. And when I look at John the Baptist's life, man, what an example of someone who is trying to put Jesus first and foremost. See, John the Baptist, even when he was a, a little baby in the womb, the Bible talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus, going to go visit her relative Elizabeth. And it happens, 
in Luke chapter 1, verses 43 and 44, I have these verses up on the screen for you guys today. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. So John the Baptist, little baby inside the womb, as soon as he came close to Jesus, also in the womb, just leaps for joy. Elizabeth is full of the Holy Spirit at that point because the Messiah has that power. It's only Jesus who can do that. A little baby just leaping inside the mother's womb. It's almost like he's excited, like, like the spirit is ex- getting him excited for what's to come in his life. Let's look a little bit more. I, I want to look a little bit more at John the Baptist and his ministry. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I have the verses up on the screen for you. It says, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, that's the message right there of John the Baptist. Turning people away from their sin and warning them that the time is short. And then in verses four through six of that same chapter, it says, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now this is super unique because uh, as really a prophet, he separated himself from the normal day-to-day life. Now, there had to be a lot of challenges with that. It says he was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt, and he ate locusts as wild honey. And I know for a fact, if I would have taken my lifestyle the way John the Baptist did, I probably would have never met my wife. (laughs) She would have been like, who is this crazy guy coming at me with camel's hair, and he's eating bugs? Okay? So... A unique man and a unique individual, to say the least. Again, another view of John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. John would say, look, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the, bride, the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And then he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So this is a great illustration that John gives here, something he recognizes. Remember, I referred to the church as being the bride and Jesus being the groom, spiritually, illustratively. Well, John the Baptist recognized himself as the friend of the groom. He says, look, the bride is not mine. The church isn't my church. It's the groom's church. So I'm going to do the best that I can 
as a friend to the groom to bring the bride to the groom. And the, the example that we get from John is, look, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's a dying to self in our life. Not taking credit for what God is doing through us. Because it is God who is doing the work through us. It's not ourselves. Later, John would baptize Jesus. And John had this humble heart where he said, look, I'm not even worthy to, to loose Jesus' sandals. He felt that humble towards Jesus. And when he would see Jesus coming to him as he would be baptizing by the river, he would see Jesus approaching him and John would say, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus would come to him and, and say, baptize me, John. And John would, would be like, are you coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus would explain to him, look, this is to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus would be baptized as an example for us to also be baptized. It's going under the water, the death to self. You're coming up with a new life. It's the old man, the, the natural man being put to death and being reborn in the spirit. For some of us, we have to be held under for a lot longer than others. I'm just kidding. <laughs> My sister, though, agrees in the back. She says, yes, yes, you did. <laughs> now, John, the Baptist, he was bold. He was an example to what I believe Christian leaders need to be as because he would even speak out against King Herod for committing adultery. For taking, King Herod was taking his own brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. And King Herod, because John the Baptist was speaking out against him, though he liked John the Baptist and considered him a prophet, because of the politics, he had John the Baptist put in prison. And then King Herod, on his birthday, Herodias, her daughter, who was his brother's wife, which he took in adultery, Herodias' own daughter, which would kind of be his niece, came to King Herod and danced. This was some sort of, what Bible scholars say is some sort of sexual dance before him. This is this filthy man. And he's aroused and the lust comes a hold of him. So he says, look, what do you want, little girl? I'll, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And there's people around him and there's other politicians and, and leaders there with him. So she runs over to her mom, Herodias, and says, Mom, what should I ask for from the king? And the mom says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter brought to me. So the little girl goes back and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter here. And the king, because of the men who were sitting around him and his pride, Though it broke his heart to actually do this, out of pride, he said, okay. He had the servants go. They took John the Baptist. They cut his head off, and John the Baptist's head was brought to them on a platter. That's the wickedness of the world right there. And you would think, you would wonder how a man 
who was just fully sold out for the Lord could be allowed to endure that. And God is sovereign. I know that the reward that John gained in heaven was much greater than that suffering that he received. Man, I wish sometimes there's more Christian leaders like John the Baptist who were just willing to put their lives on the line for what was true for Jesus. But even in John the Baptist's life, there was a time when he was sitting there in the prison and he had his own disciples. That's how big John the Baptist, his ministry was, where he had his own disciples. And he was putting his disciples now back to Jesus. But there was a time when, as John was sitting in prison, he would send his servants, he would say, hey, go to Jesus and ask him if he is really the coming Messiah. Because if he is, then why am I here? What's going on? And they went to Jesus and told him, hey, are you the coming one that we're waiting for or do we wait for another? And Jesus responded to John the Baptist. And this is where it's coming to. I know that the authority of Jesus. Jesus told John the Baptist's disciples, he said, tell John the blind are seeing, the deaf are able to hear, and the dead are being raised to life. So Jesus didn't say, look, tell him, yes, I am the one. He said, look at what is happening through me. Look at the authority that I have because of the works that I am doing. And Jesus pointed to his works as a witness to his authority. And when you look at the life of Jesus, his works were a witness to his authority. Continuing on. As they, let's look at verses seven again. It says, so they answered that they did not know whether it was, who, whether it was from. In verse eight, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then in verse nine, then he began to tell people this parable. He said, a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now, whenever we come to the parables, you want to look at this as an illustration of an earthly illustration that it's going to explain a heavenly truth. So in our illustration, we have here a man. That man I'll tell you guys, is God the Father. He has a vineyard, which is the world, and he leases it to these vine dressers. And these vine dressers are Pharisees. They're the, those who were left in charge to give the people God's commands. Now, God puts overseers in charge of his flock. He does that. We see that through scripture. And as People, by the way, an overseer is someone who, who watches over the flock. Now, this isn't just excluded to the pastor. An overseer or that word a bishop, that's what it also means, is someone who's watching over the flock. And, and, and I exhort us, look, God has placed people underneath you. God has placed people who look to you for leadership, for spiritual guidance in life. How are we taking that position as overseers, as people who are watching over the flock that God has given us? There's a verse that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
verses 2 through 3. About the requirements, the qualifications of an overseer. He says a bishop or an overseer then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. Temperate. Sober-minded. Of good behavior. Hospitable. Able to teach. Not given to wine. Not violent. Not greedy for money but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. So if we feel called to lead in our life, if we feel called, this is a great qualification test right here. When it says the husband of wife, it's literally meaning a one-woman type man. And for a woman, that would be, look, your, your only desire is for your husband. Apart from the Lord, we know that Jesus is first. It talks about not being given to wine, not being quarrelsome. And these are things that we need to be exhorted in. That, that we aren't to go to the bottle when we're going through problems. We're not to get angry when things don't go our way. But we are to ask that the Holy Spirit would empower us to grow as believers. And not to allow compromise in our life. I want to grow as a believer. I struggle. I fail every day. And I encourage you guys, keep fighting the good fight. I know it's hard at times. And I know you guys sometimes get spiritually tired. But keep fighting. Fight the good fight. In verse 10, continuing on, it says, Now, at vintage time, continuing in the parable, at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and also cast him out. So in this illustration here that Jesus is giving, the servants who he's sending were the prophets. Because Jesus would, or God the Father would send prophets to give the commandments of the law to Israel. And many times, historically, these prophets were killed. Even Stephen, the, the first martyr of the New Testament church, he told the Pharisees, look, which of your forefathers did the, or which of the prophets did your forefathers not kill? When you guys look and study the history of these guys who wrote our Bible, guys like Isaiah, you know, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, you know, he was sawed in half by King Manasseh. When you look at the prophet Jeremiah, he would be stoned by the Jews in Egypt. When you look at Ezekiel, he would be slain by the chief of the Jews in the land of the Chaldeans. The prophet Amos would be tortured to death by the priests of Bethel. They would slow, uh, eventually slaughter him. When you look at the prophet Micah, 
He was slain by Joram, who was the son of Ahab. When you look at Habakkuk, he was stoned by the Jews in Jerusalem. And lastly, Zechariah, King Joash, slew him between the steps and the altar in the temple. So much so that when he slayed him, that the blood would spray onto the horns of the altar. These are the men of God who sometimes we think that Christianity is just a means of success in our life. Or if we want to have a happy ending, which eternally, yes, we will. But if we want to have a successful life, that, then we sign up for Christianity and it means equal to success. But these guys, it took them all the way to get martyred. And, and we know very little of persecution here, which I thank God for that. Do I want to be closer to the Lord? Yeah. But I pray you guys would not experience that type of persecution in your life. In verse 13, continuing in the parable, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And that's what they did with Jesus. We know that Jesus here, he is the son in this parable. Do you guys want to grow in your love for Jesus? Raise your hand if you want to grow in your love for Jesus this morning. Then I lovingly warn you guys that you will suffer because when Jesus calls you, he bids you to come and die. And that's the death to self. Sometimes it's not a literal physical death right there. But to die to yourself, to put others first. To take it on the chin sometimes when the world comes against you. Have we learned how to do that yet? Have we learned how to die to ourselves? Are we doing that daily? I remind us that you guys only have one life and it soon will be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And one more quote for you. A man or a woman, I'll say, is no fool who gives up that which they cannot keep to gain that which cannot be taken from them. See, all this world, all this life, it's all going to fade away one day. So grab hold of what cannot be taken from you. That is the eternal riches of God. In verse 15, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? I'm reminded here that when they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him, this is all talking about the cross, what Jesus did, his work there, what they did to him, our mistake. Messiah, our Savior. First, Judas betrayed him, right? We know the account. We're going to be diving into that as Easter is approaching us, as Resurrection Sunday. Judas would betray Jesus. They would set up an illegal trial in the middle of the night for him. They would beat him, put a bag over his head, and they would beat Jesus, the Pharisees. They would take him to Pilate where he would then be scourged by a cat of nine tails, the, the Roman whip, 
would dig into his flesh and rip out of him. And then in a mockery, they would create this crown of thorns and place it on his head and they would push it on and hit him with a reed. And they would put a, a reed in his hand and begin to bow down and say, oh, the king of the Jews. Then they would take him to the cross, cause him to carry it, put it up there on, on Mount Calvary in Golgotha. They'd put the nails in his hands and in his feet and put him up to suffocate where he would die. But before that happened, they would place a spear through his chest. And he would, before all that took place, before he, Jesus was a man who gave up his own spirit. He would say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And when he breathed his last, he would give up his ghost to his father. And as they would put that spear through his chest and pull it out, the blood and water that came out of his chest, physically, medically, what that meant was that his heart, it burst with water and blood, meaning that he died literally of a broken heart. That's what they did to our Jesus. That's what we did to our Jesus. But Jesus is warning the Pharisees, remember, in this parable, he's warning them. And he says, look, at the end of, of that verse, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And then in verse 16, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. See, I, I look today now that, that Israel, the religious leaders, that they failed so therefore the church today and its leaders have been given that, that vineyard. Are there Jews who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Yeah. But now the, the, the focus is on the Gentile church. So I look at the church today and its leaders and I pray that we would not do as the wicked vine dressers did but that we would take up that mantle and live righteously, live ho holy lives. In verse 17, then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Whoever falls, in verse 18, whoever falls on that stone will be broken but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to a powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. We're going to stop here, but I'll, before we end this study, I, I do want to give you guys this illustration about the chief cornerstone. Because th this is what Jesus is referring to himself as right now. He looked at these people who weren't understanding what Jesus was really doing and he gave them that parable. He said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And, and to kind of summarize what he was referring to was when they were first originally building the temple, there is this historical tale that they would tell that as they would, they were creating the, the temple, King Solomon didn't want to have, according to the Lord, 
any of the tools making loud noises at the side of the temple. So what they would do all their shaping at the rock quarry and then bring those rocks and stones to the temple to be built. And eventually, the temple builders, they, re they were receiving all, all the stones and they got this one odd-shaped stone. And they looked at their, their charts and they're like, where does this stone go? And they're like, I don't know. Like, just put it in the back for now. Let's just put it over here. So they put that stone in the back. And they're continuing their building. Now, what's really important in construction is to have that chief cornerstone placed at the proper time and in the proper place. So when they got to that point and they said, okay, bring, where, where's the chief cornerstone? Bring it. Call the, the rock quarry up. So they dialed them on the tally. They called the rock quarry. They didn't have phones back then. But they sent letters. They said, bring the chief cornerstone. And the rock quarry writes back, we already sent it to you. And they're like, what do you, what, we already sent it? And then some, someone's getting in trouble now at this point because they're like, wait, who was taking inventory that day? And they're like, wait, wait, wait. Remember, remember that stone that was like weird and we didn't know what to do with it and we put it over in the corner and there's bushes now growing over it? Pull it out. And they pulled it out and they're like, oh, this is the chief cornerstone. And it fit in exactly where the construction needed it to be. Now, the truth of God's word it was prophesied of. The suffering Messiah was written in the Old Testament. And the Jews, they looked at it and they didn't understand why these certain prophecies were talking about a suffering Messiah. They couldn't comprehend it. So that was the weirdness of the shape of, of this account, which is like that chief cornerstone. They didn't fully comprehend it. But now, Jesus explaining these things to them, explaining how he does need to suffer for the sins of the world, he has become that chief cornerstone. And we could either be fall on the rock and be broken, like humbling yourself, submitting to the Lord, or we can be crushed in the judgment. And Jesus, he knows that the time is short. And, and the, the Pharisees were angry at this. But you see, we have an opportunity now today. The Bible teaches us that today is the day of salvation. So, Whatever your past looks like, whatever your past looked like up until this very moment right now when you walked in the doors, right now, today is the first day of the rest of your life. With Jesus, all things are new. His grace and his mercy is new for you every day. And he loves you. He has a plan for your life. And he calls us to be part of his army. So let's go forth. Let's be prepared for the return of Jesus in our life. Let's pray.